welcome to this episode of the Bully Pew Podcast. I'm recording this podcast on the morning of February 27th, 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Protestia.com. All the troublemakers that work at Protestia and provide all of that helpful and interesting and sometimes depressing polemics and discernment news, which we always recommend that you uh, read some of, but don't make it all of what you consume. Um, Perhaps don't even make it the primary stuff that you consume in terms of news and um, extra biblical material, which it very much is. Uh, This podcast is sort of the, I don't know, the, the after, after show or the the inside baseball or, you know, backstage, I don't know what you want to call it, but this is basically um, our chance to get to talk about things that are just on my heart and on my mind and, and hopefully on the hearts and minds of other uh, other men who are what I lovingly describe as pew-sitters. In other words, we're not in vocational ministry per se. I know some of you might say, well, dude, you work at you, you, you work and write and do video stuff at Protestia, and that's a ministry, therefore you're a vocational minister. Okay, I can, I can see that point, but my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, my relationship with my church is very much as a, a layman, which is it's a term I really don't like um, because it, it, I think it draws a, a needless distinction in a lot of ways between um, the pastorate or vocational ministers, or even these days, I mean, with modern churches, employees. I mean, how many, you know, churches used to be more or less, um, you might have one or a few vocational ministers, that is men who are paid, um, paid pastors, paid um, elders, um, you know, that, that fit that role, that biblical office that we see um, defined and prescribed in Scripture, and then a lot of other and a lot of other folks that are just uh, like me. They're they're volunteers. They're they're doing it uh, for um, the love of the church and the love of the ministry. Not to say that paid pastors aren't doing it for the love. They are, and we we pay them so that they can dedicate full-time work, full-time effort. It can be their primary focus without having to worry about how do I feed the family? How do I feed the kids? How do I pay the bills? Um, I know some pastors would probably say, I still worry about how I, how I will feed the kids and pay the bills and all that. A pastor's salary very often is not, um, it's not what a capable and talented man um, of their ability might be able to earn um, somewhere else in the private sector. But this, this podcast is very much from the perspective of a, a pew sitter and a Christian man trying to uh, figure out a lot of the, a lot of the you know, I would argue relatively complicated things that intersect with our faith and our lives and um, how, we, how we see things and, and sort of go through life day to day both as, as Christians and as those called to um, be worshiping. Um, the Lord with our lives, but also as fathers and as, as people going to work and as you know, people living regular lives. I, you know, I would argue regular lives that are not part of the, um, the institutions of Christianity. And when I say institutions, I'm not just referring to the church proper, although of course that is the, the only, um, worldly, um, 
well, worldly is not the right word, obviously, but the only um, uh, prescribed Christian institution, all of the other things, whether it's, you know, discernment websites, polemics websites, whether it's um, missions organizations, whether it's seminaries. Um, I mean, there's a whole host of of Christian organizations out there that are not prescribed in Scripture. That doesn't make them sinful, obviously, but it does mean that we need to keep that in context. And there is a whole slew of men and women, I mean, a whole slew of people out there that work full-time in this industry. And it really is an industry to a large degree, even though industries aren't aren't inherently bad. They can be for good things. There are plenty of industries that we would say are really important and really helpful for regular people. Agriculture being one of them, obviously, being able to feed people. Um, you know, energy in our in our modern society, energy is an as a Im- essential industry. It's an essential sector of our economy, and there is um, there is a Christian industry in this country. There are organizations that um, that exist, hopefully exist, to serve and minister to um, you know. Be, be ministers of the kingdom, whether that's um, in missions or whether that's ministering to Christians, Christian education, um, providing resources and help for, for churches, um, which, I mean, that, that one's interesting to me because we don't see that really scripturally, except you might argue that, um, you know, like, like Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul could have been said to be a parachurch minister as he wrote to churches and ministered to them and traveled around and, and helped, you know, shepherd the elders of those churches and then, and the people at those churches, we could, we could rightly describe that as a parachurch ministry. Um, and of course the important thing is all of these ministries and all of the things that we do in, in the Christian world and Christendom are tested, are tested against scripture. But for the regular pew sitter like myself, uh, being able to navigate through these things and really sort of understand what they're dealing with in terms of the the institutions of visible Christianity. And again, these aren't the institutions of the actual Christian faith. These are these are man-made institutions that, while there's nothing inherently wrong with that, they they're not biblically prescribed, and so they're not they're not necessary per se. Not, nothing is required about something like the Southern Baptist Convention or um, you know, K-Love Radio or something like that. None of this, none of this, all of this is an industry, you know, Christianity Today, the, the once potentially not liberal magazine that's now gone fully, fully left in a lot of ways is not an, it's not an essential thing. It's just a creation of man and it has its own agenda and its own purposes that may or may not be um, biblical, may or may not be for the kingdom. Um, a Christian school fits this description. Right, a Christian school is not something biblically prescribed. It's not something we see um, that is necessary um, in Christendom. It's not necessary, and so if if and when we decide to send our kids to a Christian school or support a Christian school or start a Christian school, it's all it's all subject to the Word of God, and it's all something that, if done in contradiction to God's God's Word. Um, should be corrected or abolished. It's nothing's necessary about any of this, and yet you find the people at in these institutions, you find the people in charge of them very often, almost um, 
because the institutions bear the name of Christ, they, they link the two together where Christian ministry and the institution are one and the same. And so any criticism of the institution or the way that they do things or the leaders of those institutions is tantamount, at least the way that they characterize it, is tantamount to criticizing um, Christ himself, criticizing Christian ministry itself. It's a, I mean, it's a clever little rhetorical trick because Christians are, uh, we're taught from a very young age to be trusting and to be reflexively supportive of anything that bears the name of Christ. Uh, we, we saw this, we see this with this um, so-called Asbury revival, which I, I don't know at the time of recording this if anything is still going on over there. I think the, the president of the school or something or said time to wrap it up, which of course is, is funny to me because it's like, if this is a real revival and it's spontaneous and it just came out of nowhere, um, how, how do you just decide that it stopped? I mean, if you're claiming that this is a movement of the Holy Spirit, um, who are you to decide that the Holy Spirit's work is done here? You're going to, you know, you're going to put an end date on it, an end time. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to accept it as a movement of the spirit when we can clearly see it, um, kind of, being managed and approached and whatnot like it's a like it's any other event um i think i told a friend of mine in a text message that i felt like the asbury revival was a revival for the tiktok generation so it's it's you know what they call planned spontaneity this is actually a a um concept that is familiar to performing artists musicians and um, you know, comedians and actors and things like this, this idea of planned spontaneity. The idea is to make the audience feel like something genuinely spontaneous happened, but of course you've planned it out the whole time. We saw with the Asbury revival, quote-unquote revival, um, Francis Chan had apparently planned some something at the school uh, for a couple weeks after this whole thing started and kind of it sort of telegraphed and predicted that all this was supposed to happen uh, weeks before it actually started. But I think that the biggest, I, I realize I'm chasing a rabbit here, but I think the biggest evidence for me that the Asbury uh, revival is not an actual revival per se, like biblically defined revival, is that it no, no worldly institutions, no pagans, no institutions that generally stand against Christian teaching stand against Christ uh, care about it at all like you would assume if there's an actual revival an actual movement of the Holy Spirit and um, you know wayward cultural Christians who I think in most cases aren't actually Christians are coming to faith you know quote unquote returning to the faith and they're repenting and they're sitting under convicting preaching of the word of God at this point you would think that if that's what was going on uh, the world wouldn't be so be so interested in, in reporting it, you know, sort of neutrally. So you see news reports from mainstream outlets on this thing saying, eh, you know, a bunch of kids are, are praying and singing for hours on end. Um, yeah, that's cool. And they, you know, they don't, they don't care. And we know for a fact that the Bible teaches that true proclamation of the gospel, true Christianity is offensive to the lost world. And so the fact that the world is, doesn't seem to be offended by this at all should make us all step back and say, okay, let's, I think our skepticism is proper. And I've said before, our, our skepticism and our willingness to test things should be in place um, with anything that claims the name of Christ. 
anything that comes out and says it, especially something that comes out and says it's a new work. This is a new thing. Um, you know, we are believers and inheritors of a truth and a gospel and a faith that is once and for all. Um, this is a truth once and for all delivered to the saints that we believe in. It's not something that that happens new and fresh in terms of its content. Like the new and fresh thing is um, new people coming to believe the eternal truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to place their faith in Jesus just like uh, people have been doing for 2,000 years. That's, that's, the, that's really the only fundamentally new thing that should be happening. So if you're, you're, you're seeing these things and they're talking about it being new and, and fresh and it's different and the Holy Spirit is moving in a way he's never moved before, um, be skeptical because that's not what the Bible teaches about, about the truth of God's word. It's not what the Bible teaches about um, our faith and what we believe, which is very much a once, uh, you know, Christ died and um, gave himself for those that would, would believe for from for all of time there's not the gospel hasn't changed it's not different um which is a it can be a difficult sell you know for these places that these churches that try to sort of sell the you know sell the uh the gospel or sell jesus and they would of course say well not that's not what we're doing and yet look carefully at, at what they do look at their their clever marketing packages and they have graphics and and videos and, and audio and, and hype and, and all of this and, and events it's constant events so it's not that we gather on Sunday every single Sunday um, you know from the beginning of the church we gather to worship Jesus on Sunday and um, proclaim his name publicly and um, sit under solid preaching and I mean all the things that we do that's not that's not a a new fresh event that's that's a solid event that's the rock it never changes right and and what we believe never changes and yet these churches will they're they're constantly on well it's the new it's the new series it's the new the new event it's the new reason to show up i mean i hear i hear preachers say things like this is the you know we're we're praying that this is the series this series will transform your life and of course, a few weeks later, they're like, and this series will transform your life. And then, of course, a few weeks later, and this series will also, like, how many life transformations should a Christian have? Well, one, their salvation, their conversion. That's the life transformation. And, and after that is sanctification, which is a slow and sometimes painful and difficult process. That's what follows. And yet you have these Christians who are sort of, um, you know, self-described Christians. I don't want to. I don't want to judge whether these people are truly saved or not, um, in, for the scope of this conversation. But you have these these self-described Christians who are constantly in and out of the faith. They're constantly recommitting. They're constantly saying, um, "I'm of Christ and I believe," and 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 I've I'm, I've been transformed by this event, and this time's going to be different. And then, of course, then they fall away again, fall back into their old sinful patterns. And then it, what is, it, it takes another event, another quote-unquote revival to sort of bring them back and set them back on the path. And this is just, this is the, the way of life for them. There's nothing solid about it. It's like they need the, they need the sugar rush of the next, um, you know, seeker-sensitive uh, campaign to get them back in the church and get them back to, you know, trying, at least trying to claim, you um, that they believe in Christ. 
and that's just not that's not the truth of the Christian faith. Um, and and it's I mean we'll have we'll have people like like John MacArthur, for instance, who's who's you know lifetime of yeah, and of course the man's a sinner. I mean we all know this, right? We're all sinners, um, but has stood um, steady for decades preaching the gospel, preaching the word, standing up in the face of a a culture that hates us, um, and has hated us since he started preaching. And he's almost looked down on like, that's not, that's not who you want to follow. That's not what you want to be like. Um, which is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you know, in this idea being promoted where it's basically like, Hey, we need to get this old, these old fuddy duddies out of the way to make room for, um, the, the young blood, the new, the, the new blood in, in, in Christian ministry, you know, it's, this is, this is what's often being promoted. Um, and it's, it's, that's, that's not the nature of our faith. The nature of our faith isn't the next program and the next hurrah and the next, um, you know, quote unquote movement of the spirit. Like these movements of the spirit are, um, you know, real movements of the spirit that is our genuine, um, conversion, genuine life change that happens in the heart. They're not something we can, we can manufacture or plan. And they're, they're largely not something that, uh, looks like what we've seen in this, in this Asbury, you know, quote unquote revival, you know, where, where you start asking around and this is, this is, you know, I, it's not, I didn't go to Kentucky, but plenty of people have gone to Kentucky whose discernment I think is, is generally spot on who have real concerns when they start asking around and talking to people and the responses they get back are very emotional and the, the, you know, God's word is not, um, central to what's going on. Um, instead it's a lot of claiming the name of Jesus and then you, and then when you dig in, you find out, well, this, but this person believes things that are manifestly opposed to scripture. They believe things that are not true. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're claiming Jesus. They're saying Jesus. They're singing, you know, what a beautiful name it is over and over and over and over. But when you dig into it, it's like the, this person is likely not saved when we actually examine the fruit. When we look for the fruit and I'm not, you know, we'll save the Lordship salvation discussion for another time. But when you look in and talk to these people and look at what they believe and it's manifestly opposed to scripture, that's not how the spirit works. The spirit does not promote, uh, confusion and false, false doctrine. Um, that's not a movement of the spirit. And I'm not saying that everybody there is necessarily in this camp, but when we, when, when we are being encouraged actively to just sort of set aside your discernment, you know, who are you to criticize this? I mean, you know, it's, it's, and for a lot of Christians, it's cultural desperation. It's like anything, and, and we see this all over the place, any, anything that gets Jesus's name out there, anything that sort of looks like Christianity, um, is better than nothing. You know, it's, it's better if we have, if we have at least some Christianity out there, even if it's not, you know, really that doctrinally sound, even if they're teaching some things and like, you know, cause us all to, to, you know, widen our eyes and, and be, um, concerned. Well, yeah, but it's, it's better than nothing. It's better to get some Jesus out there. And I would argue, no, that's, that's actually worse. That's actually worse. Um, one of the biggest mission fields for the Christian church are those that claim the name of Christ and yet are not his. And this, this is all over the place. 
This happens all the time where somebody says they're worshiping Jesus and a lot of Christians, as soon as they hear Jesus, they let their guard down. They let their guard down and they say, okay, you say you're, you're following Jesus. Man, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. They, they, they take um, whatever's being said or done at face value and they say, oh, okay, you're worshiping Jesus. Great. End of story. I, my work is done here. When if they dug just a little deeper, just, I mean, one, one step further into this conversation, they would realize that this person claiming the name of Jesus doesn't actually know the real Jesus. That they've, they've created a Jesus or they've had a Jesus created for them and sold to them. And it's usually a Jesus that's kind of about them. You know, this, this Jesus is usually, um, you know, real concerned about the temporal material problems of their life. Um, he's not particularly concerned about um, them being lost in their sins. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll forgive you, but he's not really going to ask anything of you, you know. He's not going to ask you to pick up your cross. He's not going to ask you to um, potentially risk relationships with people because of the truth of the gospel. So this Jesus isn't going to say, yeah, you probably need to tell your gay brother that that's, you know, he's lost and dead in his trespasses and sins, and you love him too much to not tell him. You don't want to see him go to hell. And so you're, you're, you're going to tell him the truth, and you're going to pray for him to um, place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of his sins. Um, yeah, this, this fake Jesus is not going to ask you to do anything crazy like that. I mean, you know, how, how would that person ever be able to be able to come to Christ without you, after all? You know, without your relationship. Um, it really is a, it is a narcissism and a self-involvement that has infected the Christian church and evangelism to such a degree that most of us, we don't even realize, we don't even realize that it's all we've ever known. For someone like me that's in, um, in, in their early 40s, I'll just put it that way, I'll leave it there. Um, this is the only, you know, post-Billy Graham Christianity is all I've ever known. It's all I've ever seen. And, but if you're, if you're a historian and you go back beyond that, um, that, that's not the way that it's always been. It hasn't always been this sort of Christianity that is kind of quasi-apologetic to the world for its existence and is looking for the next novel, clever way to, to make the culture realize Jesus is your, Jesus is your friend and, and, you know, it's no big deal and you should come join our Jesus club. Um, it hasn't always been that way, but that's the way that it is now. That's the way that it is now. And you hear this all the time. You hear this in supposedly reformed circles sometimes. And, and churches that preach the true gospel and ought to know better, they still have some of this, some of this methodology sewn into what they do. Some of this methodology that, that is basically along the lines of um, how can we cleverly get Jesus, um, the message of Jesus to people where they're going to you know, make a decision for him as if somehow, you know, dead people can make decisions for Christ. <coughs> that's just not, that's just not the truth. Um, without the Holy Spirit moving first, that person is incapable of making a decision for Christ. And it's not our job. And it's, you never see this biblically. It's never prescribed in scripture anywhere for us to say, okay, how can we, how can we get this message of Jesus to this person in a way that they're going to resonate with it? You know, how can we appeal to how can we appeal to their personality and their emotions and their needs and you know the way that we're going to preach the gospel to person A over here is going to be a different way that we preach the gospel to person B over here, um, as if somehow 
it's not the spirit that moves and it's not the power of the gospel itself um, and, the, and the good news of Jesus Christ that is the, the vehicle by which the person um, comes to that knowledge. It's not us. It's not our cleverness. It's not the fact that, oh, oh, you like, you're really into parasailing? Well, so am I. I'm into parasailing too. And by the way, have you heard about Jesus? He's probably the best way to parasail. Like, your parasailing will probably be the best if, if it's a Jesus parasail, you know? That, is, that kind of idea is not prescribed anywhere in Scripture. We don't see it anywhere. Instead, what, what do we see? We see people unapologetically preaching the truth and suffering for it. That's what we see. And that's the thing that the American Christian doesn't want to do. I mean, truly, that's the that's the, the thing that... And not only is it the pew-sitters like myself that don't want to do this largely, um, they're, they're kind of happy with a with a, uh, a Christianity apart from suffering, which they've been able to enjoy for a long time um, till really the last few years, I would argue, in Western Christianity. Um, not only is it them, but it's also the pastors. It's the institutionalists. It's those that very... They very cleverly convince themselves they, that, um, hey, you know, less people will hear about Jesus if this institution is compromised. And never mind the fact that the institution's existence it's, and effectiveness itself is up to God. They think it's up to them. And they very easy, easily and quickly compromise in their own mind by saying, it's, the, the logic goes something like, uh, if I say this just directly, if I don't, you know, balance my words, if I don't measure and focus group test my speech here, whatever I'm going to say, however we're going to put this out, um, it's going to offend more people than it needs to offend. And, and ideally, if it's possible, we don't want to offend anybody. It doesn't matter that Jesus says that the, God, you know, that, that the gospel is an offense. It doesn't matter that the Bible makes it very clear that saying that somebody is lost and dead and their trespasses and sins is an offensive message to the human heart. You know, there's probably a clever way that we can get this across without offending anybody, or at least as few people as possible. And that becomes the strategy. Because after all, if we offend them, and all of a sudden there's less giving to the institution and less support for what we're doing, well, then less people will hear about Jesus. So we're really, we're really doing a good thing. I mean, that's, that's, that's the basic um, logical calculus behind so much of Christian, you know, Christian ministry these days, is how can we balance doing what we're supposed to do and preaching the gospel and getting people to um, come to Christ and accept Christ while not risking um, the, our institutional um, status, not risking the, the influence of the institution or especially in the, the internet age and social media days, the, the, um, the influence of the individual person. So it's not even so much that somebody, you know, some of these influencers, and we can call them this, I think, fairly, these Christian influencers, um, it's not even so much that they are trying to support their institution itself, whatever institution they, ident they identify with or they work for or whatever, it's they want to maintain their own influence. And they're, they're an institution unto themselves. And we see this because they get passed around like trading cards. Right, so so Ed Stetzer over at Wheaton and, and is now over at Biola. You know, Russell Moore, who's who was SBC um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, is now at Christianity Today. Now, what 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 does Russell Moore have? I mean, those aren't even that common in terms of the the job itself. 
Like what, what about being a, you know, supposed ethicist or president of an SBC um, entity makes you qualified to be an editor in chief of a, of a newspaper or a magazine or something? I don't know. Maybe he's got background in that that I'm not aware of. But the point, the point I'm trying to make is that Russell Moore was never, is, is not concerned about the SBC. He would say that. He would say, I'm a lifelong Baptist and, and you know, a lifelong SBC. I mean, he said this kind of stuff right before he left and joined, um, what, Ray Ortland's church or something, which, which I think is some sort of a, I don't know, mega, ch- mega church Anglican flavored kind of thing. But now, now he's over there, and he's not—he's not a Baptist anymore, not in terms of his institutional affiliation. Um, but he was never concerned about the SBC. He's concerned about Russell Moore Incorporated, and that is very common among supposed Christian influencers now. And we're all subject to—I mean, I—I I can't say that I'm somehow immune to this. You know, every time that I put something online or say something publicly even recording this podcast right now, it's going through my head. Like how will people listen to this? The people that come across this, what will they think about, um, not only just what I'm saying, but like every human being, I'm thinking, okay, what are they, what will they think about me? Will they trust me the next time I say something? Will this, will this, um, you know, increase my profile where the next thing I put out will be, uh, taken more seriously will will other people that do similar work to this respect me and take this seriously this is this is I mean what everybody thinks and now in the information age when when it's it's like there aren't there aren't um, you know institutional outlets but everybody is their own outlet right everybody is a is a publisher of sorts um, and their only goal a lot of the time with that or at least their main goal, is to increase their profile and there's an emotional um, there's an emotional desire that goes along with this for validation and for um, feeling the right way about it and, and, and having everybody look to you and say that was really smart and that was a really good take I mean we're all subject to this right um, it's it's inauthentic largely um, I think I think if we all step back and look at it we would admit this but to, to circle back to what I was talking about, um, and see, yeah, circle back. By the way, Let me chase a rabbit here. Circle back is one of those. It's one of those sort of like you know modern leadership uh, phrases, uh, you know, corporate leadership phrases that, that people use. And I mean, I it's not the worst one. Like it's 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 just one on the list where it's like okay we're gonna circle back to what we were talking about. I mean there's this whole list of these things that that are used constantly. Or or this one. You ever hear your pastor say this one? Okay, we're gonna unpack this for a little while. We're gonna unpack this, which is just it's it's the modern way of saying we're going to explain this. We're going to study it further. We're gonna study it further in depth. Well, study. I mean that's an old term. That's an old term. That that makes people think school. I mean all all of this stuff is focus group tested and the language is massaged and changed to try to not only make it new but also make it um, easy to receive by modern sensibilities so that so the modern churchgoer and when I say modern I'm not talking about modern in terms of uh, modernism per se uh, philosophical you know uh, um, you know modernism I'm just talking about the you know the, the years that we're in right now 
but in in the modern age in the current age that we live in um, yeah people respond better to saying something like we're gonna unpack this rather than we're gonna study this more in depth you know they, they would say we're going to um, you know train train doctrinally or we're gonna we're going to uh, really break down core Christian doctrine so they're easy to understand um, you know we're gonna find some modern way to say that that's less offensive than saying we're going to be catechizing here we're gonna catechize this is a catechism <laughs> that's an old stuffy religious term right that 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 you know turns people off and so rather than educate them about why that term's a good term and what it means and why it's not something to be afraid of uh, we're gonna we're gonna placate we're gonna massage the language we're we're gonna assume that the people that are listening are, are not really bright um, they can't see past their own emotions, and so we're going to have to respond to that instead by not using old, stuffy religious terminology. Um, but I digress. So to circle back to what I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast, it's just, it's something that those of us that sit in the pews need to be aware of, that there is a there is an institutionalism and a um, an industry behind Christianity especially in, um, a, in a relatively free society like we live in, uh, where there's a lot of opportunity for people to do and create and say whatever they want to do and, and, and create. You know, whatever, whatever they want to do is, is generally available. And there's an industry. There's an industry of, of Christians who have been told for a long time um, that it's not, it's not first and foremost about... Uh, going to church on Sunday, worshiping the Lord, um, discipling people, uh, making that your community. Um, there's also all sorts of other things that you can do to um, have the, the the life benefits of Christianity. And there's, there's going to be a company to sell you those things. I'm getting to the end of my time here with you guys, but it's, it's I mean, the Christian music industry is probably the best example of this. Because so many Christian, quote-unquote, Christian musicians, but not even really Christians, they just saw, they, they see a niche market that they can tap into. They see a market for people that, like, they want to listen to, uh, you know, popular music and emotionally um, engaging music and, and stuff that makes them feel good. Uh, but they don't really want the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that's part of the secular music industry. Um, yet, and also at the same time, they don't want to be sermonized by their songs. They don't want deep doctrine and anything that convicts them per se, or anything that's too directly worshipful of God. So there's a, there's a market in the middle of this where we can take, um, modern sounding music, you know, the, the same production techniques and not that there's anything wrong with that in and of itself, but we can make sure that aesthetically it's as pleasing to them as any other worldly song. Um, but make sure they know, Hey, we're not going to, we're not going to come down hard on the language with them. Uh, you know, like we're not going to say bad language. We're not going to have like sex, drugs, and rock and roll are not going to be part of this. Instead, we'll sell them something else that they that would would engage them and 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 you know titillate them for lack of a better way to say it. And that's um, singing about themselves. And so a lot of a lot of Christian music is really just in that camp of of being uh, self focused and it's it's a, it's a product being sold. How do we know this? Well, we can see the evidence because. Um, after you know a band or a group or something sort of moves out of the being super relevant, you know they're not as popular as they used to be. People have moved on to other groups. Um, 
in the music industry, of course, it's it's gone from album music, you know, and and you, know, you buy an album of twelve Amy Grant songs or whatever. It's gone away from that to this sort of hybrid of church worship bands and live albums, and I mean, it's gone it's gone so far into the experiential category here. Um, because that's what people want, right? They're, they're a lot. I mean, we listen to music because we enjoy listening to music because because it's um, it's appealing to us on an emotional level. That's why we listen to it. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. Um, but the you know the Christian music industry, when these groups sort of move out of being popular or something, it's common happens all the time for them to kind of come out and say, "Yeah, I don't believe any of that Bible stuff. I don't really believe what the Bible says here." You know, that's for those old fundamentalist fuddy-duddies. I didn't believe that. You know, I'm still cool. And they can get attention for themselves by doing that to a degree. But really, they're just moving on to a new audience. The audience that they had before has sort of moved on, and they're trying to they're trying to stay relevant. And you can stay relevant by, by having, a, having an article in Relevant Magazine, of, of course, of, of any place, saying, you know, Kevin Max of DC Talk has decided that he, you know, doesn't really believe in Jesus anymore. He doesn't really believe in Christianity. He doesn't believe what the Bible says. Um, and, and what that reveals largely is these are, these are people that were never of us. They were never believers. They were never believers. They just, they wanted this, they, they wanted the benefits, the, the material, the emotional, the spiritual benefits of Christianity without Christ. You know, I wish it was something different than that, but it's exactly what it is. And of course that's, that describes a ton of self-described Christians, probably the majority. I think it'd be safe to say it's probably the majority. Um, on that happy note, I'm going to close, close out with the bully pew podcast. I hope some of the information and the discussion that, that, um, I've had here with you has been helpful. Um, stay tuned to protestia bully pew podcast is embedded on the podcast and live um, page on Protestia, or you can find the Bully Pew podcast by searching around on your podcast um, catcher. There's also a link, I believe, on the podcast page, so you can get the. If for some reason your podcast player is not able to find it by searching around, you can pull the RSS feed and add it to your favorite podcatcher that way. So if you you go to the the Acast, I think it's Acast um, page for the Bully Pew. Uh, podcast, there's a way to grab that RSS link, copy that and paste it into your, you know, you can add podcasts by their RSS, um, their RSS, uh, um, hyperlink. You can add it and then, uh, it'll, it'll show up in your, in your podcast then and in your subscriptions and you'll see when new ones come out, which I'm trying to do one a week, but, um, things are, things, things are very busy. And so if I don't, um, I'll, I'll apologize in advance, but if you can't do one a week, hopefully one every every few weeks or something, and, and it can be just a more of a casual conversation, no no specific news of the day necessarily. Although, like I said, we were talking about Asbury and other things, so there can be some specific news that we get into. Hopefully, that's that's relevant and, and makes you think, and, and that the conversation is uh, is edifying and something that you can you know you can you can you can waste your time or, or spend some time listening to and, and come out on the other side with something helpful. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, for all of the uh, troublemakers of Protestia, this is David Morrill at the, the Bully Pew Podcast. We'll see you next time.